There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Hi, this is Colin Andrews and Greg Kerminski of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, and welcome to our podcast that we're calling Free Lunch. Today, we're going to go through an introduction on our group, ourselves, our philosophy, and what Free Lunch means to us. So, Greg, great to be on here. Excited to get this going. Absolutely, Colin. So I thought we'd start today, Greg, with just introducing our group. Maybe you could take us through the history of the CM group. So the CM group was just a group of advisors that decided to start working together and sharing space. And this was back in the mid-1980s at McLeod Young Weir. So McLeod Young Weir was one of the original investment firms in Canada. It was ultimately bought by Scotiabank and became Scotia McLeod. Because the group started in 1985, as you can imagine, some of the members of the team have retired since, and we're now on the third generation of advisors. I joined the team back in 1999, and Colin, you joined us in 2007. And so we've now got a lot of history. I've been with the team for over 21 years. You've been, surprisingly, 13 years already. Time goes fast. It does. And of course, in 2013, we transitioned our practice from Scotia McLeod over to CIBC Wood Gundy. Maybe we should just sort of tell people who we are. So Greg, maybe take us through a bit of your story, where you came from and your education and background. I grew up in a small Midwestern town called Regina, Saskatchewan. I'm sure you know it well. In my education, I got a Bachelor of Science degree from University of Saskatchewan. And then I moved to the University of Alberta, where I got a master's degree in genetics. Funny story, though, my very first year out of high school, which was 1971, which is sort of aging myself at this point, but 1971, and I was enrolled in an honors computer science course at U of A. And I guess I just didn't see any future in it at that time. So I guess Bill Gates got ahead of me on that one. But actually, it's too bad because it was just the wrong time. Computer science in 1971 was a very dull and boring academic study. And I ended up in biology and genetics, as I say. Now, you say computer science is boring and dull, but you're telling me that genetics was much more interesting? Well, good point. And in fact, I graduated with my master's degree in genetics in 1979. And that was right about the time that biotechnology and genetic engineering was starting to become known and used. And some of the very early biotechnology companies started there. And it actually is why I left science, because I became much more interested in the business side of it and the business aspects related to biotechnology than the actual research. So that's where I ended up. How about yourself, Colin? Tell me about your background. It's a funny question because we know each other's backgrounds pretty well, but I guess we're sharing it with other people that we don't. Also from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, not Regina, not as cool as Regina, but just up the road. I started off my education in North Dakota where I went to study school, but I ended up just studying football. That didn't go very well. And I ended up back at the University of Saskatchewan, a campus that I grew up on. My dad worked there for many years, and I studied economics there. And 
most recently finished an MBA at Royal Roads University just a couple of years ago. So it's been a lifelong learning adventure, but that was my path. So Greg, tell us about your first jobs. Like you talk about how computer science was dead. No future in genetics. No future in <laughs> genetics. Who cares about biology? So what did you do after school? Because I was quite interested in business, my plan was actually to pursue an MBA as well. But after spending seven years in university, I thought I would take a break. And so I was living in Vancouver and I was quite interested in becoming a stockbroker at the time. And it was the real heydays of junior stocks on the Vancouver Stock Exchange at that time. And while I was studying with the Canadian Securities course, trying to get licensed, I was offered a job at Procter & Gamble instead. And my own economic situation at the time required that I take a job. And I, I took a job that I expected would be a one-year job, and I ended up staying at Procter & Gamble for eight years. And that really gave me a lot of experience in the areas of client relations, in sales and marketing. And it was a great experience, fantastic company, but it was a big company and I was looking for something a little bit more independent. And that ultimately led me back to this industry. So tell us how you ended up in this industry though. My interest had been in this area since I graduated from university. And I guess I just really put it on hold for a number of years. But after becoming a little disillusioned with just the Working with a large company like Procter & Gamble, I wanted to be a little more independent. And as it turned out, one of my good friends and co-workers from Procter & Gamble had joined the investment industry in the late 1980s and had been encouraging me to pursue that again. And so I finally listened to him and joined Scotia McLeod back in the mid-90s, which was also a very interesting time in Calgary Lots of activity in the oil patch at that time, lots of junior capital pool companies, and lots of interest in oil and gas stocks, particularly at that time. So the companies were hiring, and I joined. Now, the listeners might not be familiar with what a junior oil and gas stock is right now. <laughs> well, I guess these days, a junior oil and gas stock used to be a senior oil and gas stock. But no, these were junior capital pool companies were essentially startup companies and many individuals involved in the oil and gas industry would raise $100,000 of capital, do a reverse takeover of a small company that might already have one or two wells and try to grow it into a big company. And it was a very active time in the oil and gas business. Coincidentally, it was also the time that Briex was making waves around the world and people were becoming temporary millionaires by holding Briex. So Lots of exciting things going on in the stock market at that time. <laughs> and what about you? So let's hear about your journey into this business. Well, as you know, I've had a lot of jobs over the years. So I'll just tell you about my most two recent, I want to call them first real jobs. I was going to say, let's not go through all 30 of them, but let's just <laughs> focus on the important ones. So the first real job I guess I had, I worked at Xerox for a company called Pan Canadian. And this was during Y2K when the big issue was around what was going to happen to all the computers in the world, as you would know from your computer science history, what was going to happen when the earth turned the year 2000. So that was an interesting job, but I realized I didn't want to be in IT and that wasn't my path. I also realized that like you, although I didn't go to genetics or biology, I instead went to finance and worked at a Canadian bank, a Canadian bank that had locations in grocery stores, which is an interesting concept that they tried to use. 
So my job was to do mortgages and bank account openings and things like that. Basically soliciting people while they were shopping for their groceries. (laughs) That's a challenging job. (laughs) And then moved up from there exactly to more senior roles within that bank and different branches. I think ultimately you became the branch manager, didn't you, at the main branch of yeah, a major did. Canadian bank? This unnamed major Canadian bank. When I left there, I was the manager of their main branch in Calgary. And I too went to Scotia McLeod. I went to Scotia McLeod in 2004 with very little experience investing other than through the experience I had at the bank. But it was interesting for me because I first started getting into the stock market in grade seven. We had a teacher who did a stock market challenge for us. And there are two things that came out of that. Number one, I realized what a stock market was. Number two, I saw a lot of my classmates cheating in the stock market game that we were doing and changing their results, which isn't that much different than I suppose has happened in the real stock market over the years at times. But my family and I, we would play a board game called Stock Ticker. I don't know if you're familiar with that game, Greg. I haven't seen it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually since purchased it, and I've tried playing it with my own kids. They find it pretty boring. Basically, you invest in either different commodities, stocks, or bonds, and you roll the dice and see what happens. Hopefully, we'll have better strategies for our clients than that. I think we do. Actually, I think that's a good segue for us, Greg. I wanted to talk a little bit, or want you to tell us a little bit about the evolution in our group sort of pre-credit crisis 2008 to post-credit crisis and any changes that occurred in the business. Interesting you ask that. And I think I'd even like to take it back a bit further and just talk about how my strategy, what happens to an advisor from the time they become an advisor and how that evolves over time. Because there has been quite an evolution in both the way I approach the business as well as many of advisors or brokers that started back in the 80s or 90s. So when I started, First of all, the business was very transactional. So you come in and as most new advisors coming into this business have exactly one client and you know who that client is, your mother, <laughs> yeah. right? And so we all come Well, mine this- was my uncle, oh, but there, close okay. enough. <laughs> so you come into this business with one client and really the focus, while we've got all the training and we're fully aware and up to speed on all the different investment strategies and products that are available... The main job, of course, of a new advisor is to go out and gather clients to build a business. And in those days, it was very transactional, meaning that if you did bring in a new client, they'd want to know, well, what stocks are you going to put me into? What's your investment strategy? And we would look to our portfolio advisory groups, as they called them, and to provide us with ideas on what stocks we should recommend for clients' portfolios. And so we would end up with a portfolio that maybe had a mutual fund or two, or a bunch of individual stocks and some bonds or strip bonds typically. And that was the nature of the relationship. And we'd call up the clients once in a while and recommend a switch of a stock in the portfolio. And so again, as I say, it was very transactional in nature. And as a result, not very satisfying, I wouldn't say for either we, the advisors, or for the clients, because the extent of our discussions or contact would be around, is now a good time to sell BCE and buy TELUS or vice versa. And that kind of carried on as I became more experienced in the business. It became clearer that what was more important than the transaction of doing a stock trade or switching a mutual fund would be to try to get a little bit deeper into understanding what exactly the client's needs were. But again, that took time to develop. And during that time, 
or leading up to, you had asked about the period leading up to the financial crisis that began in 2007 in the U.S. and a year later in Canada, our business still had become driven by transactions. And during that time, I don't know if you recall, uh, I'm sure you do, but in the- Do I recall (laughs) the global credit crisis? Yeah, I I recall uh, In the early 2000s, there was in Canada in particular, this massive rush of companies to become income trusts. And that drove a lot of our activities for many years during that period. And so not only were we looking at buying and selling stocks, but new issues. Every company was in a rush to become an income trust if they were already operating as a corporation. And other companies were looking to spin off parts of their businesses into income trusts. And so again, a very transactional nature. That came to an end when the government decided to shut down the tax loopholes that allowed income trusts to offer such supposed benefits to investors. But that was the nature of the business leading up to the end of income trusts and then a year later into the global financial crisis. So when the financial crisis hit and it became apparent that there was no place to hide, I mean, the markets themselves took a very dramatic drop, as you recall, to a point where the individual or the broad market indexes were down about 50% from their highs. But there was other stocks, some of which we believed were the safest stocks to hold, like bank stocks, for example. And those stocks fell 60% or more in some cases, particularly when you're looking at U.S. bank stocks. In some cases, 100%. Exactly. And that was obvious because that's where the financial crisis started, was in the banking industry and the lax standards with regards to mortgage lending and that kind of thing. And so As you recall, because you had just joined us prior to that, it really required us to rethink the way we approached our investments, and that was a very critical time. We talk internally about our evolution, about how the way we used to do things, just like you mentioned, Greg, of picking stocks, we kind of refer that as Neanderthal-like behavior and how we've evolved to a more scientific approach of factor-based investing. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So maybe tell us about the six key items that we've learned over time. And I'll just say one thing before I get into that. One of the things that became apparent during the credit crisis is there was a lot of individual securities that we may have owned in the past that actually went to zero. And that hurts. And when you own an individual stock, for example, you've really got a whole range of outcomes, but the most extreme outcomes are that that particular stock could essentially grow to infinity and you could get rich or it could go to zero and you could lose everything. And after coming through that, I believe we as a team decided that we don't want to hold securities that can go to zero. The stock market has had a lot of tough times in the past. A lot of bear markets have happened. And even when you include everything that happened in 1929, 1932, 33, the early 70s, the stock market has never gone to zero. And so what we decided was that we were going to build our portfolios, as you say, with more of a scientific basis to them and provide portfolios that would allow our clients to sleep easier and to have a more positive investment experience. So here's some of the things we learned over time. One, that capital markets work. They do work and they always have, and we expect that they always will, and that risk and expected return are related. And there is quite a difference there. People often will say that risk and return are related, but it's not exactly true. It's risk and expected return because, of course, there's no way to predict what future returns are going to be. But we know that risk and return are related, and to some extent, 
there is no free lunch, with the exception of this podcast. Yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. Exactly. Point number two, which again ties into the free lunch concept, is that asset allocation is crucial to our return or expected return and the amount of risk or volatility we're willing to take. Asset allocation simply being, rather than holding a single asset like stocks, we include other assets which may not behave in exactly the same way. Bonds, real estate, even cash investments or short-term investments. And Greg, we're going to hold another podcast on asset allocation pretty shortly. Exactly. That'll be our next discussion. After asset allocation, diversification, and most importantly, proper diversification helps to manage risk. Diversification is just the concept of don't put all your eggs in one basket. You can diversify geographically by owning stocks or bonds from Canada, the US, other international markets. We can hold different types of stocks, stocks of large companies, small companies, etc. So diversification is critical in helping to manage risk. Number four is that passively managed portfolios can certainly outperform actively managed portfolios over time. And that's not to say being completely passive will always outperform active, but there's a lot of research showing that how the more activity in a portfolio, the less desirable the outcome. And so that's a critical point. Number five, emotion itself is counterintuitive to investing and needs to be managed. And a lot of the economic theories that have come out over the years do assume that people behave rationally. And the reality, based on the entire study of behavioral finance, has shown that normal human behaviors and emotions can interfere with having very strong investment results and portfolios. And the last thing is that fees and expenses are an important part of the investment plan and should be managed as much as possible. And so while there will always be fees and expenses in investing, the more we can manage and lower those fees, the better the return will be to investors. I think that's a great segue into actually what free lunch stands for. And Greg, when I was looking up the term free lunch on the World Wide Web, I was able to find the original term free lunch being saloons in the United States would give a free lunch to patrons who purchased a drink, which sounds great. You go in and you have a nice cold beverage and somebody gives you a free lunch. The problem is that they would be oftentimes high in salt, these items of food, which would naturally encourage the patron to order many, many more drinks. And this was the original term of free lunch. And and so, of course, it's been expanded on. And there's an acronym that I don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe it's Tenstaffel, but basically means there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, that there's always a hidden cost in anything that's free. Now, Greg, maybe tell us about what Milton Friedman, how he used the term free lunch. Well, Milton Friedman was an economist at University of Chicago, and he used the term to talk about opportunity cost. And so his position was that for every decision, there was an opportunity cost attached. And I guess the concept there, and you can expand on this a little bit, Colin, is that for every decision that we make in building a portfolio, there will be some offsetting opportunity cost. Yeah, I think the way I would view that is, and what we've talked about internally, is that you only get two items of free lunch in our industry, and that being what you talked about, asset allocation and diversification. We view those as two ways to access returns. The way this would read is that the free lunch that you're giving up, the opportunity cost that you're giving up perhaps might be a concentrated portfolio. 
that you could absolutely hit it out of the park with, but you could also lose everything. So back to your point earlier about owning things that could go to zero, that's the opportunity cost you're giving up in this free lunch perspective. Absolutely. And people believe that there is this saying that the only free lunch in investing is diversification. And that comes from work that was done by a Nobel Prize winner named Harry Markowitz in the early 1950s. He was actually a student of Milton Friedman's. And what he did, he was the first person to really look at the risk and return associated with portfolios of different asset classes as opposed to individual asset classes. And basically what he found was that by combining asset classes that had different correlations, meaning that stocks and bonds do not behave exactly the same in every market condition, and by combining portfolios with different asset classes, you could actually achieve the same expected return with a lower amount of risk and volatility by combining those asset classes as opposed to holding a single asset class, 100% stocks, 100% bonds, etc. And so really that has come to be known as the basis for modern portfolio theory in the first place, but it also creates the concept of the free lunch in investing and that being diversification. We wrote about this recently. We've been writing a weekly blog during this pandemic that the world is going through. And one of the articles we wrote about was the Death Star portfolio. And this we released on May the 4th, because that is known as Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Now, in that article, we talked about how, yes, you can have a concentrated portfolio and you can definitely get rich. But just like the movie Star Wars, when the Death Star goes down because of Luke Skywalker's infamous shot, that's the end of it. Is this how you're equating this to Markowitz's theory? Yes and no. I mean, absolutely. Certainly, there's big risk in concentrated portfolios, and that's why over the years we've moved away from that. So that's diversification away from a single stock. And certainly, we know as you add more stocks to a portfolio, you eliminate some of that what we call specific risk, which is the risk associated with an individual company, and you spread it over a larger number of stocks, and you end up with less of that specific risk and more just of the risk of being in the markets in general. And then when you layer on top of that, adding in other asset classes, that's where you start to see some of the real benefits of what they call efficient markets and that just being the highest expected return at the lowest possible risk. And we don't want to give everything away here. Let's not give it all away. You're right. But listen, Colin, since we're talking about our team and a little background on our team, Why don't you talk a little bit about the type of service and some of the ways we approach working with our clients now? Historically, we were a reactive business, as you mentioned, basically trading securities for clients. Perhaps somebody would call in and want to buy a good stock or a good bond or something of that nature, and we would execute a trade. And that's the way it was done. The evolution of the service far exceeds the evolution of the investment management process, I believe, in that it's completely focused now on what's important to clients that require planning money and time, whatever goals they want to accomplish. And this has nothing to do with buying the next best dividend stock or the next best strip bond or whatever the case might be. It's a way of tying in whatever they're doing on their investment side to achieving a goal. So our service level has definitely gone through an evolution and I'm very proud of where we are today because there's a definite lack of trust in our industry. And I think that lack of trust comes from 
or distrust as some people call it, comes from the fact that there's a very low barrier of entry into the financial services industry. And I think it's our goal as a team and through these podcasts and everything that we do that we want to raise the level of experience for our clients, but we also want to raise the level of experience for advisors and all outcomes. So I guess that's how I would quickly wrap up our service. Totally agree, Colin. And it's interesting. I was thinking about when we talk about what it was like when we first got into the business. And I remember, again, as I mentioned, it was kind of quite a heyday for stock traders back in the mid-1990s. And no barriers to entry, as you say. Anybody could become a stockbroker. And for a lot of individuals, it was all about the fun for them. Like, oh, this is great. I got a great stock tip. And they'd call all their clients and maybe it would work out and maybe it wouldn't. But it was really more of a casino atmosphere and far less professional and less focused and disciplined and less strategic. When you're just trading stocks, well, what's the purpose? Why are you doing this? What's the goal for the client? And I think over the years, it's become apparent, and I'm happy to say I think the level of service in the whole industry has improved a lot in the last 25 years, because it's not really about how much fun trading stocks is for the advisor. It's what experience does the client enjoy, and to what extent are their wants and needs and goals, financial goals that they've set for themselves and their families, how are those being addressed? How does the investment fit into their overall sort of life goals. And not only that, how can we help beyond just the investments themselves? How can we help clients achieve those goals? And so the focus certainly on financial planning, estate planning, has really offered clients a much more broad, holistic approach to their financial life than just what stocks or bonds they own. And I think that's what's really important to clients. Yeah. And we're going to get into that in future podcasts. I should mention before we wrap up for today, that this is going to be a regular podcast and we hope that you'll subscribe to it or follow it or whatever it is you do with it. It's going to be serious. We're going to have a lot of great discussions. We've got a number of guest speakers lined up for future podcasts and we're pretty excited about getting this thing going and we're excited about who's agreed to join us on future episodes. Anything else you want to say to wrap things up here, Greg? No, I think I'd just like to thank everybody who's listening in and promise that we will get into a lot more detail on some of the concepts that we've just touched on briefly in this episode. Because there ain't no thing as a free lunch except asset allocation and diversification as we talked about. And this podcast. And this podcast, that's right. All right, well, till next time, I guess. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. 
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.